patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. everyone and welcome to the 108th episode of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Tylosky. Thank you all so much for joining me this week. Hope you are excited for the midterm elections if you're choosing to vote this year. And I hope that you're also looking forward to the upcoming winter holiday season coming up with Thanksgiving later this month. I hope you are all well during this time, and just as a kind reminder, if you are new to the program, make sure to subscribe to our podcast. Be sure to also subscribe to our email list if you like to receive notifications when episodes come out, and also check out our website for information on how to get uh, merchandise. We are selling our mugs, our friends and fellow citizens mugs made in the USA, great quality and obviously a great way to not only enjoy your favorite beverage, but also support the podcast as well. This really, really helps. And obviously, a uh, big shout out to our Patreon supporters as always. You are all in fantastic and just so critical for the program. Today's guest is Catherine Lawhead. Catherine is a senior policy analyst with the Tax Foundation Center for State Tax Policy in Washington, D.C., where she serves as a resource to state policymakers in their efforts to modernize and improve the structure of their state tax codes. Ms. Lawhead regularly testifies before state tax committees and has authored or co-authored comprehensive tax reform options guides for multiple states, including Wisconsin, Kansas, Nebraska, and Kentucky. Her research and analysis has been cited in the New York Times, USA Today, Forbes, the Associated Press, and numerous state media outlets across the country. Prior to joining the Tax Foundation in April 2018, Ms. Lawhead served as a legislative assistant to a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, where she advised on tax policy during the consideration and enactment of the historic Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. A graduate of the John Wesley Honors College at Indiana Wesleyan University, Ms. Lawhead holds a BA in Business Administration and English, as well as a paralegal certificate from Georgetown University. A very, very knowledgeable guest on a very difficult topic to grasp, but I know that she's going to really bring a lot of value into understanding uh, tax codes across the country. I especially look forward to discussing how this relates with one of the pillars of Washington's farewell address, fiscal responsibility. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm very excited to have Catherine on to our program. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on to our program today. Thanks for having me, Sherman. Well, I'm very, very excited to speak about something that I've always wanted to have on the podcast at some point, which is really speaking about fiscal issues. And it's something that uh, I've covered in some detail on certain episodes, but we haven't really had a full episode about tax policy in the U.S., which is incredibly important. And I know people are hearing taxes, but tax policy, I think, really, really shapes American life and the way that we, we conduct business uh, uh, here in government. Uh, Catherine, can you first tell us a little bit about how you got interested in uh, tax policy and a bit about your background and career? 
Absolutely. Well, so I actually majored in English and business administration in college. So I wasn't even thinking about public policy as a career option until about halfway through. So it's kind of funny how it all came about. Um, But I became interested in policy in general and tax policy in particular when I interned for my state representative. I'm from Illinois originally, grew up there, and this opportunity to intern for my state representative kind of fell into my lap, and it turned out to be this wonderful experience. I learned a lot about policy, and that kind of launched my career into public policy, but When I was working for that representative, I really enjoyed fiscal issues in particular, especially in a state like Illinois, that where fiscal issues tend to be one of the issues they struggle with most. And it's a state where there's a lot of fiscal irresponsibility. So that was a particularly interesting issue for me during that time. And then after the internship was over, when I got that stipend, it was like two or $3,000. But then seeing how much came out in taxes, in federal and state income taxes, was really shocking for me because it was one of my first real jobs. And having that big of a chunk come out of a paycheck at that time was a bit shocking. So that's honestly what drove my interest in tax policy. And then when I graduated college, moved out to Washington, D.C., and worked on Capitol Hill for a while and really had the privilege of being able to handle a lot of different tax or a lot of different policy issues for the congressman that I worked for. And tax policy was one of the ones that really interested me the most because of its impact on all of us. And so about four years after starting on Capitol Hill, I switched over to the Tax Foundation, where I've been for about four and a half years now. And it's really been a pleasure to dive deeper into tax in particular and learn all the ins and outs of it and work on trying to make tax policies smarter and more efficient at the state level. So that's a big part of what I do now in my current role. That's such a great story because uh, I think all of us have seen that kind of moment where it's like, hold on a sec, I thought I was getting two, $3,000 or however amount, right? And then then the whole tax thing, the reality kind of sets in. It's like, uh-oh, now I got to pay a little bit to the government here for the roads and all that. But then I, I, it sounds like you, know, you were kind of seeing like, well, it wasn't, just, it wasn't really about fact that we have taxes is the fact that maybe there's so much of it can can be paid to to one state is that is that kind of a good um good summary of kind of what you, what you realized yeah absolutely i think you know all of us know that we pay taxes we know that we have to pay for government services and we don't often realize just how much we are paying and when a little comes out of each paycheck, you might not realize quite as much. But seeing it in that one big lump sum uh, was really shocking to me as kind of a young, newer worker. And then, um, you know, I just think there's a lot of lack of transparency. A lot of us don't know exactly how all the taxes we pay work or specifically what that money is being used for and why taxes are the way they are. And so there's a lot of complexity to it and a lot of confusion. So we at the Tax Foundation really do try to bring some simplicity to the policies themselves, but then also try to educate everyday taxpayers as well as lawmakers and the journalists who are writing about these issues every day. We really try to bring some clarity to tax policy and cut through that confusion a bit. 
Now, is that kind of the most interesting element of tax policy? Is it cutting through the simplicity or is it something else that you find particularly interesting about researching tax policy? You know, there are so many things that are interesting and unique about working every day researching tax policy. But one of the things that's most interesting to me is just the way it affects all of us. And it affects us every day in a really personal way, because our hard-earned money is being sent every day to the government, whether through income taxes or sales taxes, property taxes, even excise taxes. Um, It's you know, something that affects us every single day. Um, but few of us, few of us, few of us do have a clear picture of exactly all the ways that it is affecting us. And so that's one of the interesting things. Another is another interesting thing about state tax policy in particular is that every state does things so differently. So Every state relies on the Internal Revenue Code in some ways as the basis for the state tax system. But then every state in our federalist system of government really has a lot of flexibility within certain constitutional constraints to go their own way and make their own forms of taxation and to uh, choose their rates, choose the tax base or the things that are subject to taxation, the types of income or the transactions or types of property that are subject to taxation. So every state does things so differently. And it's really interesting to see how that plays out in terms of our economy and in terms of creating this environment where states are competing for jobs and investment and where people are attracted to states that have lower taxes and better tax structures and where there's a more pro-business environment where no matter what your business is or what your personal background is, if your tax code has a more level playing field and gives you the chance to succeed and really start and grow a business or get launch your career and feel like you are able to save and invest for the future, that's really ideal for, for all of us. And so it's something that a lot of states should really try to prioritize, um, ensuring that their tax code isn't standing in the way of success. That sounds, I mean, would think about how much is out there for, for us to look at um, in terms of the, the states, right? 50 states plus DC and kind of see how, how it's like, it's like a, it's almost like a quilt almost like a patchwork of various different, different ways of doing things or, um, I mean, it's, it is profoundly amazing and not to mention the history of America is coming from, you know, the, the, the protests against, you know, the no taxation without representation. I mean, it was just such an iconic phrase. I'm guessing that any politician that wants to bring back the Stamp Act and Townsend Act would probably not be reelected or elected to, <laughs> to office here in the States. Um, now I want to go into, into some of the things that you, you already brought up, but really just, um, I want to start kind of broadly speaking about state business climate and kind of how state taxes go into that. One of the things that I find interesting is that obviously there's a lot to talk about, you know, there's the corporate tax, there's this tax, that tax. Um, what sort of things stick out to you when it comes to how uh, the factors, I should say, um, fiscal factors that come into play in determining how well a state does in attracting businesses through its tax policy? That's a really good question. And like you said, it really is a patchwork of state tax laws around the country. And so because every state does things so differently, comparing one state's tax code to another can kind of be like comparing apples and oranges a bit. 
And so um, it can be difficult to really cut through and try to see which states are doing things better than others, but some things really do come to the forefront. And one of those big things is taxing income. If states are taxing income, they're taxing the productivity of workers and of businesses. And a lot of states have really progressive tax codes where as you earn more income, that income is being taxed at higher and higher rates. And that can serve as a disincentive for earning additional income or taking a better job or an additional job or being in the workforce at all. If you have the opportunity to work and get taxed at a really high rate or to you know, be in a dual income situation where you maybe don't have to work, this high tax codes can really keep some people out of the workforce altogether who might want to work. And so that all has economic impacts where it's affecting state output, it's affecting productivity and growth and entrepreneurship. And so the states that really try to limit taxes on productivity and err more to taxing uh, real property and consumption tend to be more pro-growth. And so we've really seen this play out in a, lot, in a lot of different ways, especially in terms of the states that are most able to attract individuals and businesses. But that's one of the major factors here. Another is that a lot of states have pretty uncompetitive and complex and outdated taxes on the books. And those taxes, the more and more our economy grows and technology gets better, the less those taxes tend to fit in with our modern economy. And states that continue to keep those taxes on the books run into a lot of inefficiencies, both in terms of compliance burdens for taxpayers, and uh, just in terms of administration, administrative burdens for the state. And so these are all things that present an opportunity to look at better ways of structuring our tax codes and creating a more competitive environment. And so I will use this as a chance to talk a little bit about our state business tax climate index here at the Tax Foundation, because this is the main tool that exists in order to evaluate the competitiveness of state tax structures. And so what our State Business Tax Climate Index does is it tries to bring some level the playing field a bit, and it uses over 120 different policy variables to evaluate state's tax structure. So it looks at whether your tax is progressive or flat, or whether your tax code indexes for inflation to prevent people from being forced into higher rates just due to nominal increases in their income, even if their real income isn't increasing. It looks at property taxes and how high tax collections per capita are. It looks at sales tax structure and whether the state and local governments have a uniform sales tax base. So whether they're applying the sales tax to the same group of categories of goods and services or different ones. And how states do on all of these 120 plus different things will determine how they rank on that index. And so if you're curious about how your state's doing, I recommend taking a look at that. And there's a lot of charts and tables in there that really show you where your state is falling behind and what areas are in need of reform and what your state is doing well and where things are competitive. 
That's really great. I'm, I used to live in California. I'm guessing California, your home state of Illinois, are not doing so great on the state business index. They are not. California and Illinois have been kind of toward the lower end of the spectrum for a while. But actually, one of the surprising things is Illinois has a pretty uncompetitive tax code overall, but they do have a flat individual income tax at a relatively low rate. And so that is actually one of the major, like, things that continues to be a good thing in their tax code. And so they score better than you'd think because of that one thing. So our index is a cool tool because you can be like, huh, I thought Illinois would have been a bit worse. And you can see why it it is maybe a little better than expected. But on property taxes, certainly there's high tax collections per capita. California has a lot of complexity and a, a very, very high top marginal rate. And so a lot of those things are evident on that index. Yeah. It seems like, it seems like a lot of people are fleeing places like California, maybe not just because of the high taxes, because it's just so complicated that that's like, I can't deal with this anymore. I gotta, gotta go, gotta go somewhere else. And, um, I, and this is really, really interesting stuff because I, I always kind of wondered, you know, just given that we live in the United States, we, it's almost like we have a choice of what kind of taxes that we want to live in. I mean, depends on, people's preferences, where they want to live, but it, it is it is such a bit such a big deal when it comes down to money because I think sometimes I don't know about you, but I feel like sometimes in politics we 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 like to think that we're we, and, and it might be the and it's probably the case that a lot of people are supporting some kind of ideological or some sort of political goal of trying to make the country better. But at the same time when it comes down to the reality of things, there's people who want to keep more of their money rather than rather than give it to the government. But something that that puzzles me is is why there are certain states, let's say California is an example. What puzzles me is how how so, so many people can be willing to pay or at least vote for people who who, who implement higher taxes. What, what sort of reasons do people give on voting for people who raise taxes, even though it's even though there's so much complexity and there is an anti it's sort of a, a a bad business climate associated with those policies that's a really good question and i think a lot of people may not even realize all the times when their taxes are being increased because some of it can occur subtly it can occur very automatically in terms of as your property value appreciates if you don't have levy limits your state and local governments could be taking more and more in property taxes per year, even if the cost of your local government isn't rising by the same at the same rate as your property value. So that can occur a little bit over time, but really add up. Even automatic factors like failure to inflation index, the major provisions in your tax code. If if the top marginal rate kicks in at $30,000 and has kicked in at that level for the past two decades, you're getting more and more of your income exposed to that top marginal rate over time. And your taxes are increasing even if the code is staying the same. Uh, So there's a lot of subtle ways that taxes increase over time, even if not necessarily automatically. When actual legislative tax increases have occurred lately, a lot of those are actually not being levied on everyone. So you you don't see many increases to the sales tax rate, for instance. I haven't seen 
a broad-based sales tax rate increase for quite some time. You do, however, see states that have graduated rate income taxes tweaking those top marginal rates. You see a lot of proposals lately for millionaires taxes where there's a desire to fund these new programs, but instead of sharing that burden among all taxpayers, there's a lot of proposals recently to just have millionaires paying more of that tax burden. So for instance, in California, there's a ballot measure on the ballot in November that could potentially raise that top marginal rate to above 15%. And that's a crazy high rate, uh, especially when you think of that state tax burden on top of your federal tax burden. And that's just income taxes. That's not even taking property or sales or excise taxes into consideration. And so, you know, this idea that I don't want to pay more in taxes, but this person over here who's wealthy, they can fund all our services. That is becoming more and more of an idea that is politically kind of difficult to combat because, you know, it's a lot easier to say yes on the ballot. I want my taxes to stay the same, but someone else can pay the additional burden. You know, we're all more careful with how we spend our own money than with how we spend other people's money. And this is becoming increasingly a problem, not just because it is taxing people at some pretty crazy high rates, but also because that has economic implications for all of us, because those people who are wealthier are also the entrepreneurs and the job creators, and they are tend to be investing quite a bit in their communities in one way or another and spending more. And so that is generating tax revenue as well. And so the more we drive people out of states like California, they're going to look for more hospital, hospitable environments elsewhere. And we've seen a lot of Californians move to places like Texas, where there is no individual income tax. And uh, I think this is something we might talk about a little bit more later in the episode. But interstate migration has a lot of tax has a lot of a relationship to tax structure and to really high tax rates. And we do see a ton of people fleeing high tax, high cost of living states. And the states that they're most likely to move to are the states that have no individual income tax because their pro- productivity isn't being penalized to such an extent. I, I really like that, that transition into in, into the migration. I did want to ask one question about the inflation element you mentioned. Um, just broadly speaking, I mean, given the state of the economy, we're seeing inflation around eight percent or so. How how much of how much do you see inflation as a tax almost? Because it seems like people, I mean, people are literally paying for the same kind of things, literally the same things, but 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 paying more, even though earlier on, back in early twenty twenty one, and in really in really back in twenty twenty two, the year twenty twenty, excuse me. Uh, Congress has, had been passing all these bills, printing so much money. You know, obviously, given the huge amounts of you know the well, trillions of dollars worth of you know of um, of spending, and fast forward to today, now people people are seeing the effects of that of effects of of, of you know Keynes kind of Keynesian economics here. And, uh, and so, how much how much do you do you personally see inflation as a tax? But it's like. It's it's like a ghost tax almost. It's like you can't see it, but it's but it's kind of creep kind of creeps in into 
into people's wallets here with, without them maybe noticing immediately. Yeah, that's a really good point you bring up because inflation is known as a the hidden tax. It does increase, you know, the prices for the goods and services we're buying. And when tax rates aren't adjusted to account for that, or when inflation adjustments aren't made into state and local tax codes, we are paying more to the government than we would otherwise. And so we have seen a large amount of revenue increases in the past couple years. Now, some of that has been due to economic growth with the state and uh, state economies growing faster than a lot of people predicted and bouncing back faster from COVID than even most economists predicted. So some is due to economic growth, but a lot of state and local revenue growth, it's somewhat attributable to inflation, where if all the prices you're paying for goods and services are going up, and then you're paying a 6% sales tax on those things, that 6% is bringing in a lot more for the government than it would have in the past. So this is something that is impacting us, not just in terms of the higher prices we're paying for goods and services, but in terms of the higher taxes we're paying as, as a result. And it's creating a problem for most people. And most people are looking for ways to try to cut back and reduce their spending. And, you know, we it'd really be good to try to do whatever we can to promote policies that don't add to the inflation problem. And, you know, this is really the role of the Federal Reserve to try to get inflation in check and get the economy back on track. But it's it's a complicated issue for sure. Yeah, I've noticed not a lot of state governors are are are, are speaking probably about the the budget sur- or the surplus that they're getting out of the out of the inflation out of the you know the more revenue that they're getting because uh, maybe it's not such a good look. Uh, you know, <laughs> that has been really interesting because almost all states have had these enormous surpluses, and some states a lot of them, almost half of them, have been returning some of that extra revenue to taxpayers in the form of individual and corporate income tax rate reductions. We've also seen some temporary rebate measures and things like that. But interestingly, in a lot of states like New York and California and Illinois, they used the early days of COVID as kind of an excuse to say, oh, we don't know how this is going to affect revenue. And so we're going to put some tax cuts on hold. And a lot of those states, despite having, you know, huge surpluses, are not continuing on with those taxpayer-friendly provisions. So things like in Illinois, where they were on track to get rid of their capital stock or franchise tax before the pandemic, which would have been a really good policy. They used the pandemic as a reason to put that policy change on hold. And so far, there's been no talk of saying, oh, actually, our revenues are doing a lot better than expected. So we can go ahead and proceed with that tax cut. No, some states do want to say, you know, oh, revenue is still a big concern when it's not a concern. So I think it really, it can be complex to cut through a lot of the rhetoric that's out there and some of the disinformation and the way that some of these things are spun by some politicians. But really, it's a good idea to try to look for reputable sources and look for the truth in some of these discussions and say, no, our state really does have 
a lot of extra revenue and really can't afford to make some taxpayer-friendly tax changes in the future. And those provisions will help the economy. And we've seen a lot of economic growth in the states that are doing things like reducing income tax rates. They've been better off because of it. Really interesting. I, I guess I'm not hiring Albany to spend my GTA stipend uh, anytime soon. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, great. So let's move on to the like the migration elements, like just how how state tax policy is really changing some of these demographics here, uh, or just the numbers of people moving to to states like uh, Nevada, Texas, even Tennessee. Um, I've my family recently moved to Nevada. Uh, one of the reasons why is because of the, the, just the insanity that that happens. And and I say it's and say Santa. I know this is supposedly nonpartisan, but it's like when you got a high tax rate and all that stuff. It's, you're creeping closer to insanity, just at least from the perspective of taxpayers here. Um, I, I want to get into just not only some of the things. I mean, you kind of touched upon some of the things that are kind of driving people to to those states. How how are those states now res- responding in this in terms of not only attracting business, but also the other issue too for, for especially for locals, which is. Um, dealing with the influx of people because you know you you could have a higher a bigger tax base and all that, but then w- w- there might be some kind of maybe political repercussions on people getting priced out and you know maybe how that affects tax policy. So what what sort of things have you seen from states like Texas and Florida and uh, and others um, get, receiving? I guess you could say receiving these um, these people from California or Illinois or all these places. Uh, how they how they're responding to this influx through any changes that they've made to their own tax policies? Yeah, that brings up a really good point. So to touch on the trends we're seeing in terms of where states are moving from year to year, we definitely are seeing a strong positive relationship between states that have low top marginal individual income tax rates and lower than average tax collections per capita and well-structured tax codes and the states that are seeing consistent net inbound migration from year to year to year. So we are also seeing states with high top marginal rates and higher collections and poorly structured tax codes losing a lot of residents from year to year. And so there is really a strong, there's a lot of evidence that people are impacted by tax policy and it does factor into their decisions on where people choose to live and work. Now, I will not come here and say that taxes are the main reason people move or are you know, one of the only reasons people move, but they definitely factor into people's decisions. So if you have a job opportunity in two different states, and one state has a really high top marginal individual income tax tax rate, and the other has no income tax at all, you're going to think long and hard before you move to the state with high top marginal rates. And especially if you want to launch a career and you expect to have upward mobility and make more income over time, you're going to be less likely to choose a state with the high rates. And a lot of people, especially now when people have more remote work flexibility, a lot of folks are able to keep their job in 
a big city where there are lots of job opportunities, say New York City or San Francisco or LA, Chicago, but live from a surrounding state, like say Indiana, we see a lot of Indiana residents commute to Chicago for work and then go back to Indiana to live where uh, their property taxes and income taxes are lower. Um, So there's really a lot of evidence that taxes are impacting where people live. But now with remote work flexibility and with hybrid work flexibility, people can keep their jobs in Cities like even D.C., where a lot of my colleagues have been able to keep their D.C. job and their D.C. salary, but live from a state where they can afford to buy a house and they can have lower taxes and lower cost of living. And more and more people, especially young professionals, find this extremely attractive. And so states that like Texas and Florida and Tennessee and Nevada Um, in Georgia that have either low or no income taxes or lower than average taxes, they're attracting a lot of new residents these days. Um, So it does create certain challenges for the people who live there and for the governments that are dealing with large influxes of people moving from other states. You know, it certainly does put some strain on the infrastructure. I know my sisters who moved uh, from Illinois and Michigan to Tennessee talk a lot about how traffic has gotten super bad there in the past couple of years with so many people moving there. And I know I spend a lot of time in Idaho and talking with policymakers in Idaho where they are growing at such rapid rates and people are concerned about how that is impacting their property values. You know, long term, it's great to have appreciation in your property values for when you eventually sell, but it does have an impact on people in terms of the tax burden from year to year. And you do want to be sensitive to uh, people, especially uh, retirees and others on fixed incomes and lower incomes who don't want to be priced out of being able to live where they want to live. And so it is a complex issue. There's not a simple solution, but one of the best solutions is to make sure that the government isn't just sweeping in all that extra revenue and keeping it for themselves, but that they are returning what they can to taxpayers and finding efficient ways to use that revenue. So finding ways to increase capacity for other residents. And now I will say, you know, this is an opportunity for states that otherwise might struggle to attract and retain residents um, because they might have not not have mountains or beaches or an amazing, you know, climate, but they have a lower cost of living and they are a great place to raise a family. And so states like that, that might otherwise struggle to attract residents can really say, look at their tax code and find ways to make their tax code more competitive and use that as an opportunity to attract some people from states who might otherwise move to Florida, for instance. Maybe more of those people will want to move to Georgia if Georgia continues becoming more competitive. And a ton of people are moving to North Carolina, but I know South Carolina has talked about some tax reforms that could attract more of those people who might otherwise move to North Carolina. So there's really a lot of opportunity for states to 
spread out where people are going and make more of the United States more hospitable to all kinds of people and all kinds of businesses. That's really great. I, I like especially the, about the Carolinas. The Carolinas at at each other's throats again. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I have a friend from South Carolina, so he he's definitely told me about the the rivalry there. Um, yeah, and it, it's 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 really really interesting to hear what you're saying, Catherine, because um, there's a lot of things that are kind of coming to play, and I'm not sure how how much of uh, of an area of focus this is for you or for the tax foundation, but is there, are there any sort of a cultural element to some of these tax tax climates? Uh, case in point, uh, and you probably know this, but uh, Nevada has uh, Nevada's constitution uh, says since it became a state, literally Lincoln probably saw this himself. I mean, he was probably pretty happy about that. Um, but he saw. But in the Nevada Constitution, the, the state of Nevada cannot have a state income tax unless it, unless there's an amendment, which is incredibly difficult to pass, and it's basically political suicide for any Democrat or Republican who wants to get a state income tax. So, how how much of a impact does uh, does culture or or some kind of history play into a state's uh, ability to uh, to to change its tax code and um, and modernize it, which we'll, we'll get more into a bit after this question. That's a really good question and such an interesting point because the tax code or state's legacy in terms of what their tax structure looked like when the state was first, when the first state first became a state um, and when the initial taxes were first enacted, those initial tax decisions are still playing out from year to year. And most of the states that don't have an individual income tax right now are that way because they never did. We've only seen one state ever go from having an individual income tax to repealing it. And that was Alaska because they have a lot of oil and natural gas revenue and they were able to shift reliance to that. But legacy definitely makes a huge impact for better or for worse. So there are certainly some provisions that remain on the books that are worse than others and that are maybe creating some issues for states where it's a constitutional decision. And so states don't have the ability or, you know, current legislators don't have the ability to make some changes that might be necessary. One example of that is actually in Kentucky, where they have a really complex system of local income taxes on individuals and corporations and pass through businesses as well. So you're not just paying the state income tax, you're also paying local income taxes. And that creates a lot of complexity and a lot of compliance burdens, but they aren't able to shift to other revenue sources because the constitution prohibits local sales taxes. And so they can just rely on basically property and income. And it'd be economically more pro-growth if they could go away from local income taxes and move more toward a local sales tax. But that's not going to be in the cards unless and until they're able to amend the constitution. And that does require voter buy-in in most states where the legislature has to pass it with usually a supermajority vote. And then voters have to approve it on the ballot, sometimes with a simple majority, sometimes also with a supermajority vote. And so there are some barriers to pro-growth tax policy that 
remain that way because of the Constitution. And there are also some protections. One state where there's some protections um, is Colorado, where they have a strong Tabor Law or Taxpayer Bill of Rights, where tax increases or revenue increases of almost any level have to be approved by voters. And um, so those issues have to go on the ballot. Now, there have been a lot of ways that the legislature has said, oh, well, this is just a fee, so it isn't subject to TABOR. But TABOR does require that when the government brings in a surplus of revenue, that that money be returned to taxpayers, which is why Colorado's income tax rate has been reduced repeatedly over the last few years. And taxpayers there have gotten numerous rebate checks as well, where that money is returned to them. And so... Cultural considerations and just kind of the state's legacy do play a large role. Um, But one thing to consider, too, is that ideally states' tax codes should look like they were designed on purpose. But there's a lot of political and legal reasons why it can be difficult for state policymakers to actually achieve that. But over time, as states are able to make even just small incremental reforms year after year, that can make a big difference. So we really recommend that state policymakers always be looking for ways to improve their code. Even if small changes can be made in any given year, that can really add up over time. And we at the Tax Foundation really try to promote the principles of simplicity and neutrality and stability and transparency. And so We tend to say, look at the long term, look at ways to promote long term growth. And it can be difficult to um, show restraint because things like tax credits and uh, more gimmicky provisions that may benefit certain constituencies do tend to be politically popular. They do help lawmakers stay in office. And so there's a lot of uh, temptation to want to resort to all these short term policies that may give tax cuts to some people, but that ultimately creates a less neutral system for everyone. And we see a lot of business tax incentives in almost every state where policymakers are spending a lot of time really trying to lure people to their state when really the best incentive would be to stop some of that and put some restraint on that, but to go back to the basic tax code and look at ways to make that better for everyone, no matter who you are, so that the environment is pro-growth and hospitable and does allow you to keep more of your hard-earned money and reinvest more of your profits into hiring more employees and increasing wages and you know creating new innovations. So that's something that we'd really like to see a lot of states do is show a bit more restraint when it comes to what kind of tax policy decisions are made and evaluating any tax policy decisions through the lens of what's good for long-term economic growth. I think that's such a good point, especially about the restraint and about, it's almost like the home homegrown innovation and business is, is maybe the big thing that states can do by themselves and and something that it could be part of the state's history too. You know, the thing about the the kinds of things that um, that states can can do to promote these things or at least at least play a role in in make in how businesses make decisions and ultimately 
it, it, it factors in into the employees and, and, and uh, potentially consumers too. Uh, so this is, this is really, really good stuff. Um, I, I, I know I've probably made a lot of people jealous already by telling people that, that fun fact about Nevada's, uh, income, no state income tax thing into the constitution. Cause then there's people like, Oh, well, there's no chance of virtually no chance of Nevada ever getting rid of uh, ever implementing a state income tax, which I, I still think is the case. And uh, let's let's kind of go into the the tax modernization elements because this is something that uh, Catherine you're very interested in and something that the Tax Foundation is looking a lot into. Um, can you just give us what at least your definition or what a definition of tax modernization? You you've kind of, kind of mentioned some of those things earlier, but it's kind of a definition of that and really just an overview of some of the issues, so the biggest tax reform issues that you find are particularly relevant that could decide how a state uh, contributes to its own taxpayers and, and ultimately to its own success in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I would define tax modernization as a process of reforming tax codes to make sure tax policies are keeping up with the realities of our 21st century economy. Because State taxes have existed for about as long as states have existed, and so most states' tax codes do have various provisions and definitions and other elements that first originated back in the early 1900s, or in some cases, even the 1800s. So there's really an incredibly long list of tax reform issues that do need modernization, but I do want to touch on a few here. I think one of the basic ones is actually just the sales tax, because When sales taxes were first adopted by states, that was during the Great Depression, or some states waited a bit longer. But during that time, our national economy and the share of total U.S. personal consumption was a lot more goods-based than services-based. So goods made up about 60% of total personal U.S. consumption at the time, and services were only about 40%. Now that has completely reversed where services are about 70% of what we all buy, which is pretty shocking when you think about it and maybe surprising to a lot of people. But goods are only about 30% of what we buy. Yet state sales taxes and most local sales taxes just apply pretty much to most tangible personal property and goods that we buy, but not often the services we buy. And really, that doesn't make a lot of economic sense because it's all personal consumption and there shouldn't be discrimination or favoritism to certain types of consumption over others. And so what we've seen is the eroding of sales tax bases over time. And as those bases have gotten narrower, rates have had to increase repeatedly over the past several decades. And you know, that is something where we could look for reform, where it doesn't make a lot of sense where in a lot of states, if you go to a a hair salon or a barber shop and you pay for the haircut, but then you also grab a bottle of shampoo, you're in most cases going to pay sales tax on the bottle of shampoo, but not on the haircut itself. And that doesn't make much economic sense. And those retailers are collecting that sales tax anyway. So it's often not a huge compliance burden for businesses that are already collecting the sales tax on certain things to extend that to other things like services. 
So that would actually free up quite a bit of revenue. It would generate new revenue, but we would encourage states to use that new revenue to make other more pro-growth reforms to their tax code. So using some of that revenue to reduce income tax rates and reform other provisions in tax bases that might be outdated. And then another big one is the taxation of property, because the property tax is the oldest of the major state and local taxes, states levy. Property taxes were prominent before income taxes and before sales taxes. And initially, property taxes extended both to real property like land and buildings, but also to tangible personal property. Um, Used to be things like people's furniture and jewelry and all kinds of different things. And you could see how when the tax collector came to make sure that people were paying, a lot of people ended up trying to find ways to move that property, hide it, and not be taxed on that. So that tax has understandably been kind of phased out in most respects over time. But in our modern economy, Tangible property taxes tend to be levied on things like business manufacturing, machinery and equipment, sometimes even business inventory, oftentimes office furniture and things like printers and computers. Businesses actually have to calculate the value of that and then depreciate it over time and then calculate how much property tax they have to remit on that every single year. So states could really benefit from moving away from those and moving more toward a more reasonable property tax base, which should be land and buildings, because that does make more sense in terms of the benefit principle, too, where the value of things like land and buildings relates more closely to the local services received, like, um, you know, fire and EMS and, um, you know, law enforcement protection, things like that, that are actually helping preserve and protect the value of our property, that tax base makes a little more sense. Whereas some of these other more uh, economically complex and distortive taxes make a bit less sense. And so those are two of the main areas I wanted to highlight, but the list really goes on. And we have a lot of discussion of tax modernization on our website. Um, I will highlight a few states that we've written actual tax reform options guide for, states like Wisconsin and Kentucky, Alaska, looking at ways to help them take their tax code and modernize it for our 21st century economy. So if you happen to have live in one of those states, you can look at a more comprehensive view on steps forward in terms of tax reform. Well, this is really, really good because I'm, I'm really, I'm glad, I'm so glad that you're bringing up uh, some, some of these proposals, some of uh, which I, I never heard of before, but I think they're really, really interesting ideas because it, it just seems like it, it's, it's almost like a, it's like one of those signs of government just not keeping up with the times almost. You know, it's, it's like a, and it's, and it may sound as it's sort of a chicken or the egg sort of question because the, you know, the things are going so fast and it it's, can be really hard to keep up. But it definitely, but some of those things, I mean, I, I didn't know about the furniture thing. I can definitely see a lot of people in the past doing that. Maybe that's how storage units were invented is so that people can, <laughs> can store can store their belongings and tax collector comes. Around. I was like, I don't know where it is. Uh, I guess I don't, I don't, I don't use the sofa at all. So I just sit on the rug here to, 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 to do whatever I got to do, but um, right. <laughs> um, I, it's great. I, now in terms of some of the things that, 
voters can do to to learn about their taxes. I obviously mentioned uh, definitely people that should check out the Tax Foundation website. But in general, do you do you? It's kind of a two part question. The first is, do you feel that that we generally speaking, states are doing enough to to inform voters of what what is really going on or the the changes that are happening? Um, and two, uh, what's what can voters do to not only understand their state's tax code, but also understand um, how their tax code is affecting the state of the state, if you know what I mean. Like like how, how it kind of plays in this larger role of attracting business and the you know, well-being, social services, or anything like that. Um, just anything, what do you think voters can do to to better understand that that grander picture of fiscal policy? Yeah, I think one of the best things to do is just to pay attention to who your elected officials are, especially at the state and local level level in Congress as well. But sometimes we, the national news focuses quite a bit on what's going on at the federal level. And sometimes we don't even realize what's happening in our own backyard, in our own local communities. And so paying attention to who our elected officials are, signing up for their newsletters, understanding what types of policy they are voting on. Um, and, you know, being actively engaged in those debates, calling up your member of Congress or your state legislator to express your opinion on different issues and looking for re- reputable sources of information. Um, you know, we at the Tax Foundation really try to help cut through some of the confusion on what is being said about tax policy and in a nonpartisan, independent way to provide the facts and, you know, try to let voters and individuals decide for themselves what they think should be done on different things. But yeah, so just keeping keeping in touch with your elected officials and trying to stay informed on these things, understanding what source of, of information are reputable, reputable and which ones may be trying to put a certain spin on things. Um, you know, and then I think we, to get a better understanding of what's going on with your state tax code, our state business tax climate index is a good place to start. And we do have a lot of resources on our website for any given state because we are involved in the tax policy debates that play out in all 50 states and DC. And so there is something there for you, no matter where you're from. And so I think that would also be a good resource. Excellent. And uh, I, I will obviously link those down in the show notes below for people to, to take a look and see uh, what, what kinds of things, that, what kinds of information they want to access. And, and now, Catherine, I want to turn to but the last question before we get to kind of our reflection phase here, uh, which is a bit more about the tax foundation. And um, I'd like to ask you know, not I mean you, you mentioned the tax foundation a bit about some of the principles some of the the pillars of of your organization uh, what what sort of things or what sort of vision do you have for uh, not just your own career um, after spending a little bit over four years at the tax foundation what is your vision for your career and also really the tax foundation's role um, in in helping to modernize our uh, state t- tax codes? And and to really look and see how we can um, to almost I guess in a way innovate our our tax codes so that we can we can generate a lot more potential that we we have have not have not seen yet but might be on the horizon in the future. 
Yeah, I, you know, we at the Tax Foundation, we're, we've been around for over 85 years working to advance sound tax policy at the state, federal, and international levels. And so we really do try to present the facts because oftentimes figuring out, like sorting through census and IRS data and state tax collections data, things like that, it is time consuming. And so we try to do the work for you so that those of us who don't spend every single day working on tax policy can have that information accessible to them. And so that's a big part of our mission here is just to make tax policy more transparent for everyone, no matter who you are. Um, And so that's something we want to continue to pursue here at the Tax Foundation. So trying to educate on tax policy for individual taxpayers, for the media, and also for policymakers who are making these important decisions um, at the state level and in Congress and even other countries, because ultimately there are ways the U.S. can become more competitive with other countries as well. And so that's the work that I hope to keep doing here at the Tax Foundation. One of the really interesting things about tax policy is that there's so much to it and it's constantly changing. So there's always new ideas popping up, both good and honestly, a lot of bad ideas. So trying to really hold the line on good tax policy and where there are improvements that can be made to try to bring light to those and shed light on those so that Um, state policymakers across the country can work on improving their state's tax codes and making the environment more friendly for all taxpayers. So that's really what I envision, you know, for the next phase in my career, continuing to work on good policy at the Tax Foundation. But long term, um, you know, fiscal policy is really fascinating. And so just continuing to um, find ways to cut through some of the complexity and Um, make sure good decisions are happening because fiscal policy is kind of the basis for all policy. You know, other good policy decisions all stem from having a generate, from generating a stable source of revenue to be able to fund the services that we do rely on. And so having good tax policy can really set us all up for success, whether you're trying to, um, promote better, more efficient government or, you know, trying to just make sure the tax code is not getting in your way of success as an individual or a worker or as a business owner. I'm just really, really happy that you all are kind of just just being at the front end here of making making things easier, which I think is is a key element of public service. Might not be the like the most prominent thing that's written out there, but I I really I really enjoy the kinds of things that you're doing, Catherine, and obviously the with the uh, the work of the Tax Foundation. But uh, it's it's certainly it's I think it's very refreshing to to know that there's people who want to want to simplify these things and. Um, I'm uh, anyway. It's just really, it's just really great work. Now I want to now wrap up our conversation here with kind of looking at Washington's farewell address and some of the the values that he's kind of put out there. One of the big ones, obviously, is fiscal responsibility. You know, he's he's emphasized so much about the importance of 
keeping track of of our spending, which honestly hasn't really been going on very well since probably I think it was Jackson was the last president we had who like paid uh, we didn't have national debt or something like that. Maybe I'm a little wrong there, but it hasn't been going on very well recently in recent years. Um, it, I'm glad there's no like credit score for like the the, mm-hmm. the federal government. Because it might not look so good, but um, uh, Catherine, what, what out of the other values? If we leave out fiscal responsibility for a second here, um, but the, the other principles that I've outlined in the um, in, in the in the podcast, what which one or which ones do you think are most relevant to kind of your, your uh, what we've talked about today, and just in general of how we move forward as a country uh, with regards to uh, fiscal policy on the state level? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think backing up a bit to kind of why we're able to have all these tax policy debates is because we do live in a free society where we do have freedoms like speech and assembly and religion and the list goes on. But, you know, it can become really easy to get so busy just living our lives that we can take some of those freedoms for granted. So, I just really want to encourage all of us to be intentional about being good stewards of those freedoms and using that freedom to, you know, stay informed and to participate in respectful civil discourse and to look for ways that we all can kind of be the change in our communities and where there are societal issues across our country and divisions in our communities to find ways that we can step up and contribute to more respectful debates, more respectful discourse, and, you know, learning to hear things from different points of view and seeing whatever ways that we can uh, work together for the betterment of society and the world we live in. And so I just think that's one of the big things that uh, could be a focus for all of us, no matter what issues are you care most about. You know, only a, a few of us care super deeply about tax policy, but for the issues that you as a listener do care about to really find ways to engage on those in a in a respectful manner and, um, you know, looking for ways to be involved in these important decisions that are happening every day. Excellent. And how, how, how important is the phrase no taxation without representation in 2022 as it was back in, back in, back in the 1760s? Thankfully, we do have representation and, you know, that is a wonderful thing. And so, you know, I think just continuing to uh, take advantage of that representation we have and, you know, using our voice to make a positive difference and try to promote good things at the fiscal policy level and, you know, more broadly as well. Now, Catherine, thank you so much for wonderful conversation. I I just want to wrap up real quick here. Um, I really enjoyed some of the the way that way that you're able to make this issue very palatable, I think, for myself and for the listeners, too, because, you know, it it can be very complicated, as you mentioned. But some of the things that you brought up, I think those could be really, really good issues that uh, candidates can run on, that voters can look for in candidates. Um, There's there seems seems like there's a lot out there that can that can still be changed, even though we might a lot of people might think that 
not a lot of change can happen. But when you when you think state level, we've already had some guests on who have worked on at state on the state level, and there's a lot of change that can happen there. Um, and I, I I certainly live near one I live near Carson City. So it's it, it's it's amazing how that little it's almost like a little town. I mean, it's I know it's called a city, but it's almost like a little town of 50, 50 60,000 people. But it's amazing how that little place can 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 make such a big difference on the whole state. And so I think by realizing maybe that potential of how these state capitals, while there might be they might be in big cities or very small towns, uh, they have a lot of impact on on the way that we. We love our lives. So, um, Catherine, I do want to say thank you again, and obviously to the to your yourself and the uh, the the team at the Tax Foundation too for for compiling all this information. And uh, I'm really looking forward to to looking more into this kind of material moving forward um, into state level policy and kind of how how people are contributing to that, like yourself. So, uh, Catherine, if you have any final uh, final thoughts to uh, to our audience. Uh, floor is yours. Well, thank you, Sherman. It's been great to talk with you. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. And, you know, if I can ever be a resource on tax policy or other things, you know, my phone call, my phone is open, my email is open, you can find me on at klawhead, K-L-O-U-G-H-E-A-D at taxfoundation.org. And um, my Twitter handle is K-E Lawhead. So hope to talk with you there. Great. I'll link those down below, show notes below. So thank you so much, Catherine. Thanks, Sherman. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you all so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Catherine Lawhead. Make sure to check out the links down in the show notes below and check out the links I mentioned early at the beginning of this episode. Enjoy the rest of your week. I'll see you at the next episode. And remember, a day in America is always better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens. <laughs>